On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Matthew Bingham about Baptist Catholicity in the history of the church. So we cover all sorts of topics like, let's start with Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson's understanding of Baptist Catholicity. Based on that definition, would any Baptist really qualify as Catholic? How did 17th and 18th century Baptists self-identify themselves? Did they think of themselves self-consciously as Catholic? Did they seek a sort of Catholicity? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, and we try to do that with a couple of intellectual virtues in mind, such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We're not perfect at upholding all those things, but we hope to at least encourage sort of an intellectual culture or climate that does naturally produce those sort of things, so it creates almost a a habit within us where we reflexively act and function in those sort of ways. Uh, That's the goal anyway with the podcast and everything that we do. So we're we're not just a podcast. We have a whole institution. We're we're growing all the time, thinking new ideas, doing new cool stuff. So just be on the lookout for that. You can always check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. You can find us YouTube, all all the all the cool places. Uh, find our stuff there. But now, I do want to focus on this podcast because this is going to be a lot of fun here. So we've got Dr. Matthew Bingham, who I think is probably one of the foremost Baptist historians in the world right now. So if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you know about Dr. Bingham. He's talked with us about several topics in the past. You can go listen to those episodes. They're tremendous. Uh, but he's he's doing awesome, awesome work. I think his book, Orthodox Radicals, is one of the premier uh, Baptist books out there. And it's it's just tremendous writing. It's, it's history that's written in a way that is just fun to read. Your eyes glide along the text, and it's just so enjoyable. So today, we're going to be talking about Baptist Catholicity with Dr. Bingham. So if you regularly listen again, you'll know that we talked with Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson about their project of Baptist Catholicity. So we wanted to get Dr. Bingham to talk a little bit more of the historical angle. So is Baptist Catholicity Catholicity something that we've really sought and pursued as Baptists in the past, or is this just a new fad that's here and it'll today and it will be gone tomorrow? What are the historical bearings behind it? And we'll talk about more than that, but that, that's really the context for what we're going for here. So Dr. Bingham, before we jump in, for those who don't know who you are, maybe give me a little bit of a brief introduction. Just remind us where you're at, what you're, what you're teaching, what you're researching right now, and maybe something really interesting about yourself too. Well, thanks, Jordan, and it's a real pleasure to be um, be with you guys on the podcast today. Uh, yeah, I teach um, church history and systematic theology at Oak Hill College, which is in London in the United Kingdom, um, originally from the United States, from Los Angeles, served as a pastor there in Georgia, uh, and also briefly in, in Northern Ireland before coming here. Uh, studied, uh, did my PhD looking at um, early modern uh, British religious history, specifically looking at um, early English Baptists and sort of how they got going, their origins, what motivated them, who they were. Um, as for something interesting, you want a personal, personal detail? Uh, 
I'm married, happily married, have four children who uh, range from age 11 to 11 months. So we've, we've got a busy house these days. So I guess we wanted to shape our conversation today around um, Baptist Catholicity and, and kind of the project that's been put forward by Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson specifically. So I thought maybe a good place to start would be um, on the Center for Baptist Renewal website. I just want to read one paragraph uh, from their definition of what do they mean by Baptist, Baptist Catholicity. And they say, uh, a uniquely Baptist Catholicity seeks to situate the Baptist vision within this broader body of Christ, meaning the universal church. As the Protestant Reformation was a renewal movement within Western Christianity, so also the Baptist vision is a renewal movement within Protestantism, a renewal within a renewal, we might say. So as we call the church to greater faithfulness to Scripture, as we understand it in terms of Baptist distinctives, so also we seek to learn from other traditions as well. We are especially indebted to what many have called the great tradition of Christian reflection on the gospel and its triune God. So that I thought was a helpful summary of the project that they're trying to put forward. With that in mind, Dr. Bingham, would you say that any Baptist from the past would actually qualify uh, as Catholic in this sense. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate um, what these guys are doing. Uh, appreciate um, the paragraph you just read out. Appreciate um, the book, Baptist in the Christian Tradition, the edited collection, which I, I really appreciate. I learned a lot from that. And in terms of, you know, if we're, if we're asking, so um, as I mentioned, 17th century, kind of early modern, uh, Baptists, that's, that's my area of interest. Um, so these would be some of the first people in an English context uh, to, you know, reject paedobaptism, essentially. And so if we're asking, thinking about those um, men and women, if we're asking, were they Catholic in this little c sense, um, and how do they relate to the paragraph you read? I think, I think it depends. I think there's two ways we could think about it. Uh, if, if, by Baptist Catholicity, we are talking about this particular uh, retrieval movement and this sense of self-consciously trying to situate, as the paragraph said, you know, a Baptist vision within the broader uh, sort of body of Christ in, in that sense of a conscious project. Um, you know, it, no, I don't think they would have thought of themselves in that way. I think they had their own conversation, and I think that the retrieval movements, not just that for Baptist Catholicity, but also like um, Scott Swain, Michael Allen, Reformed Catholicity, this this whole movement amongst evangelicals um, to to do theological retrieval and look backwards, I think is very much a product of our cultural historical moment. And, you know, uh, the early modern crowd had their own issues, and we can maybe get into some of that and tease that out a bit. Um, but so... In that sense, yeah, I think 21st century evangelical retrieval movements are their own thing. Um, that being said, if we want to focus more on uh, what is being retrieved and the sense of Catholicity, and we want to talk about that in, in broad terms of sort of recognizing that whatever distinctive things um, Baptists are offering in the 17th century do not somehow negate the 1600 years of Christian history that preceded, uh, and that actually these things are, are to be seen as contributions to an ongoing conversation and say, hey, you know, 
this is great. We're a part of this conversation. Here's a new uh, tweak. Then, then yeah, absolutely. The early modern, um, you know, Baptistic Congregationalists would have uh, fit in in that. Um, they would have certainly, you know, understood themselves as um, very much building on a heritage of um, Christians who went before, and you know. We can, we can see that in all sorts of uh, ways. Again, maybe we can get into some of those uh, as we as we go on here. Yeah, so it makes me think of William Perkins and his work on a Reformed Catholic, where he's trying to show, I guess, areas of continuity, areas of discontinuity, and saying, look, we are reforming the one true Catholic Church. We are not trying to start our own new thing. We're sticking right here in the middle. Are there any Baptists who were doing similar sort of maybe this? I don't know if this is called polemical work in this context or not. But are there any Baptists who are thinking in these sort of ways, doing sort of scholarship like this? Yeah. So um, you bring up William Perkins, a Reformed Catholic. That that's that's a really interesting example. So um, you know, Allen and Swain quote approvingly from that uh, treatise early on in their. Uh, Reformed Catholicity book. And um, one of the quotes that they give from Perkins uh, goes like this. He says, by a Reformed Catholic, I understand anyone that holds the same necessary heads of religion with the Roman church, yet so as he pairs off and rejects all errors in doctrine, whereby the said religion is corrupted. And, you know, that, that really captures some of the Reformation spirit. Right, this idea that um, you know, okay, we're, we're Christians, we have this Christian heritage, but he says, you know, pairs off and rejects all errors in doctrine. So there's this idea that you know we're on the boat, and um, the but the boat's become encrusted with some stuff on the side. We got to scrape it off. There's stuff in the boat that shouldn't be on the boat, and maybe we're sinking under the weight of it. There's there are man-made things, idolatrous things that have gotten onto the boat that don't need to be on the boat, and let's throw them overboard. And so, you know, the Perkins quote there is very representative of the kind of Reformation rhetoric. It's always about divesting, about cutting, about getting rid of stuff that is man-made and bad. Um, they use a lot of metaphors in terms of, um, you know, like the mists of popery need to be cleared by the light of the gospel. But again, you know, mists, it's foggy, you can't see, and then the mist is clearing and now we can see. But the, the idea is always, we have this great thing. Uh, we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but we've got this extra stuff and we need to kind of clean it up. We've got, we've got grandma's wedding ring and it's great, and we don't want a new wedding ring. We want this one, but oh boy, it's been in the drawer for a long time, and it's all crusted over. We need to clean it up. And so, you know, that basic movement and that basic logic is very much something that the First Baptists see themselves as a part of. Now, one difference, since you mentioned William Perkins in particular, you know, Perkins very much is um, formulating his articulation of himself vis-a-vis Rome. Now, the Baptists are also thinking in terms of Rome and thinking of, of, of popery, as they would have called it, you know. Um, but their conversation is a little different because in the first instance, um, they're, in terms of their sort of existential uh, threat and reality, they're, they're also thinking of the Church of England. And so often they're trying to situate themselves, yes, vis-a-vis Rome, but also vis-a-vis the, you know, Protestant and Reformed tradition 
uh, out of which they are emerging. So, so again, there's some differences, there's some discontinuities, but the basic rhetoric of um, we've got the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and yet it's been encumbered by all of this, you know, quote unquote, Romish baggage, and we need to get rid of that so that we can really see uh, the the glorious truth that was always there. That's the logic, and yes, the early English Baptists are very much, very much caught up in that. So there's an ongoing debate in Reformed evangelicalism right now on the, I guess, nature and validity and and the role of medieval theology in Baptist theology and Reformed evangelical theology and how we should think about them. Should we use them? Are there? Should we pick and choose? Should we just reject the whole thing and say, "Look, I've got my reformers. Let's keep them because they're they're good and they sift out all the bad stuff that I don't need." Uh, when it comes to the Baptists, the early Baptists, think Kiffin, Keach, those like that. What is their opinion on? maybe Roman Catholics or other reformers, the Lutherans or Church of England? I mean, how do they think about people who disagree with them? Do they reject them in whole? Do they take parts and pieces? Uh, what do they do? Is there a different attitude versus when it comes to Roman Catholicism versus others that are Protestant? How does that all shake out and look? Yeah. Um, again, I think Part of the issue with the Baptistic writers is that they're, you know, they're very concerned, and and the bulk of their um, sort of rhetorical interest and polemical interest is situated around the issues where they are disagreeing with or diverging from the kind of consensus around them. So they're they're often thinking about church polity, obviously baptism. Those are the two. Uh, big ones. And, you know, um, I think those two are just uh, joined at the hip, really. Um, And so, um, you know, for a lot of them, they're they're not necessarily um, getting into some of the debates that you might see represented more frequently amongst, um, you know, established church ministers and that kind of thing. Uh, But in terms of a, a you know, a positive articulation of a little c Catholicity, uh, you, you, you do see that. You see, um, you see patristic authors quoted. Uh, you see a sort of conscious sense of um, saying, hey, look, we actually um, are just like other Orthodox people. We just disagree with you all on these points. And they often are trying to explicitly sort of big up the agreement and down not not downplay the disagreement in the sense of uh, we don't think this is important, but to try to explicitly state you know um, on the fundamental points that those those that language comes up a lot and the fundamental points uh, we agree and so if you look at I mean you know for example first and second London confessions uh, both are going to articulate. Um, theology proper, uh, doctrine of the Trinity, Christology in sort of orthodox, uh, classic kind of uh, ecumenical terms. And they're going to use the language uh, that we associate with um, the early creedal statements and formulas and that kind of thing. Um, when you see things like, you know, in the, in the Second London Confession, you know, there's this famous bit at the beginning where the authors of that document are explicit about 
um, making use of the very same words as used in the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession. And they, they bring this out and they underscore it to say, hey, look, um, you know, we are trying to uh, show forth our agreement here, not our um, uniqueness or our divergence from what's come before. And they see this as a good thing. And obviously, you know, when they're patterning their Christological statements after the Westminster Confession, and the Westminster Confession is echoing the language of the Chalcedonian definition, you see this strong sense of continuity. You see it in things like, um, you know, you have somebody like Hercules Collins, who puts forward his Orthodox Catechism, 1680, in which he's patterning it after the Heidelberg Catechism. And he's going to great lengths within that document to say, hey, uh, at the front end, he says um, that he agrees with Orthodox divines in the most fundamental principles of our faith, and that he only has these sort of... um, particular small areas in terms of polity and that kind of thing where he's going to disagree. So, you, you, you know, there are examples of this um, over and over where you see a self-conscious uh, desire on the part of early modern uh, Baptistic authors to uh, frame themselves as orthodox. And, um, you know, I think the book that uh, mentioned earlier that we've talked about here, the, the edited collection, Baptist in the Christian Tradition, actually on a number of heads and areas kind of draws out this idea that you have this um, early modern Baptistic heritage that was much more little c Catholic than were later expressions. Uh, You know, later expressions um, do diverge from this. And that's, I think, why a retrieval movement is is necessary, to get back to this more, uh, this earlier articulation of... um, of what it means to be Baptist and Little C Catholic. I know the early modern, the 17th century period is your area of expertise, so maybe you don't have an answer for this, but as you just mentioned, that that posture toward um, the rest of the Christian tradition did change uh, somewhere along the line, and now Baptists have more of a reputation of being, um, you know, their own little group. You know, church history began with, you know, Billy Graham, or, you know, we had Dr. Hogg on um, from Phoenix Seminary recently, and he was telling a funny story about how he was teaching on church history at this uh, church for another pastor, and this woman was excited about it, and she was telling her mom about this this guy was going to be teaching church history on Wednesday nights, and her mom didn't even have a category for it because, in her mind, church history was the history of that specific church. So she was like, well, the church is only 20 years old. What is he going to talk about? So, you know, when did this change, and what do you think the reason was for the change uh, over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, great, it's a great question. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, in underscoring some of these 17th century examples where you see this expression of little c Catholicity. Um, yeah, we don't, the, the, we don't want to make it uh, suggest that this is, this continues to be the case. Um, you know, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a Baptist church, but it was an evangelical church. And, um, you know, church history was almost non-existent in, in the, the minds of, not that they were hostile to it, it just wasn't on the table really at, at all. Um, so what, what happens? I mean, on, on that score, I think it's important as well. Sometimes Baptists get um, a bad rap as sort of uniquely 
you know, anti-history, anti-the past, anti-connection. And certainly there have been um, examples of, of Baptists who, who voice that, you know, sometimes explicitly. However, um, you know, when we think about, you know, where and when this change might have started to take place, um, towards the end of the 17th century into the 18th century, you know, you have major changes in terms of kind of broader um, social, cultural, intellectual currents. And what you see is a big move away from uh, sort of confession and doctrine. And you have this sense that the 17th century, um, you know, look at all the trouble that arguments over religious things have caused. They give us uh, wars of religion, 30 years war, um, the English civil wars, while not exclusively about religious differences, religious differences were at the heart of, of that conflict. And more and more, there is this sense of, you know, th- that is obviously a false road. And so you get a push towards um, sort of a more rationalistic Christianity, the idea being, you know, look, um, there's these things we disagree on that are speculative, uh, but if we actually just stick to what anyone using his God-given reason can can sort of agree on, we won't we won't fight, and we'll sort of boil Christianity down to its lowest common denominator. So you get works, um, you know, towards the end of the 17th century that that stress the the non-mysterious nature of Christianity, and um, to that end you know, you then come to a place where increasingly people are looking to uh, discard sort of old creedal formulas as overly um, speculative and uh, not amenable to kind of reasonable investigation. But the point to underscore here is this is not like a Baptist thing. This is just a Western thing. Um, So, you know, you have something like um, the Salters Hall debates, in 1719, where you have um, dissenting ministers, Presbyterians, independents, yes, and Baptists, uh, getting together to uh, talk about um, subscription to creedal formulas and whether or not it is it is uh, legitimate to insist upon uh, creedal uh, subscription or whether one can just sort of affirm the, the Bible. Hey, aren't we Bible people? Um, and, you know, in that, uh, you have... Lots of Presbyterians who are saying, actually, yeah, we want to be Bible people. You have a major work around this time, uh, a guy named Samuel Clark, who is an Anglican, who is writing um, on the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity in 1712. And this work is something that basically goes exhaustively through all the biblical references that he thinks are relevant to the Trinity and, and moves away from kind of classical Trinitarian language. So you have Anglicans and Presbyterians and Independents and, yes, Baptists who are caught up in this movement, um, but it, it's it's not as though there's something unique to the, the DNA of, of the Baptist mind that leads you away from these things. That, that just isn't the case. Okay, so I want to try to think through for a moment. So, Dr. Bingham, I grew up in a landmark Baptist context, and so... Very much the idea of Baptist successionism was really driven in as far as that was the, the model of how do we do church history. And kind of moving away from that, but looking at things in a, in a big picture, there seems to be a tension, maybe that's uniquely or not uniquely, I'm not exactly sure, but I think there's some uniqueness to us as Baptists 
where on one hand we are wanting to say we are a part of the great tradition, that there is so much that we hold to that is found with, within the Christian faith, but that our distinctives as Baptists are real, they're important, and they're worth contending for. And so in an American context, I think about throughout then as you move to the 19th century, the production and publication of church manuals was a huge part of Baptist literature. And then as you move into the 20th century, that seems to decline over time as there is a de-emphasizing what is unique about being a, a Baptist. And there is more of an ecumenical movement that kind of dominates Christianity. So I guess a question is, is how, how do we hold both of those tensions together of not apologizing for our Baptist distinctives and our Baptist identity, and in a sense, though, not being overtly sectarian? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, um, the million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, how, how do you, how do you do that? And, and again, I think there's, there's, um, whenever one's talking about these sorts of questions in, in church life, there's always kind of two sides to the coin, right? There's, there's kind of, how do I get my intellectual ducks lined up in a nice, neat row? And then there's, how do I then take that settled conviction out into my relationships with other people? Uh, and I think you see that dynamic in all sorts of ways. Um, one way that it plays out in in the context of the local church uh, is on a person to person level. You know, if you're so um, w- when I was pastoring a Reformed Baptist church, um, the the motto I tried to tell myself was, you know, I want to be kind of hard on ideas and soft on people. I want to remember that. I want to be. I want to try to think through as carefully and as clearly as I can, and I want to come to settled convictions. And if I'm going to move off those settled convictions for a different conviction, then I want to be persuaded of that. And and I don't. I don't want to. I want to be rigorous in that sense. And yet also pastorally, I want to remember that people are not sort of walking confessional statements, and uh, I, I have to hold those intentions. So I might be very clear in my own mind about what I believe about X and why I believe it. But if I'm talking to someone in the local church who is, who is struggling to see that or is, is coming to a different conclusion, I want to um, be able to approach that person in love and recognize that, um, you know, th- this person is, is a, a, a real individual with, with complexity and uh, their own reasons and motivations and things that are flowing into to their story. And, and can those things uh, cohere? I think. I hope they can. Um, and I think that that same kind of logic can also apply uh, on uh, some of these sort of more macro levels. Um, you know, to me, we've all seen kind of what happens when you go down a lowest common denominator route in terms of Christianity, whether that's at the local church level or the denominational level or or whatever the um, you know, we're talking here about uh, Baptist history and, and, and where some of these things went off the rails. Uh, I think about, you know, um, Spurgeon's conflict with the Baptist Union and the, the Baptist Union, the criteria for membership uh, steadily sort of devolved until eventually in the kind of late stage, um, essentially the only thing that was required to be a part of the Baptist Union is um, that you believed in immersion as the only valid form of baptism. Uh, and then, you know, 
you had to believe that every church has its own liberty to interpret everything else as they see fit. So that that's a what is that at that point? What is Baptist identity at that point? That's a that's pretty thin gruel. So you're right. I mean, we you have to hold to a thicker sense of of who you are. What's the point of holding it? But at the same time, um, you know, yeah, we have to recognize that uh, other other people are are operating in good faith and and doing their best to uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together. And that this side of glory, we're never going to all do it in exactly the same way. And, and obviously that's, um, that is the, the world that God has given us in which to operate. So we have to, we have to live with that in some sense. Okay. So I've got a question now. So when I read something like the preface to the second London confession of faith, and it talks about being falsely so-called Anabaptists, in their historical context, was there any way that they could have been seen, they being Baptists, be seen as Catholics in the lowercase c sense? Or was that kind of rejected outright, where everybody looked at them as uh, sectarians and upsetters of the state and whatever else, you know, breaking all sorts of social norms because you're not baptizing infants, blah, blah, blah. So they can't be Catholic. Was that something that would be... True, where they truly had to be known as Anabaptists or something like that. So walk me through that a little bit. But a follow-up question that, I, when I think about the historical context here, I mean, I think of people like Martin Luther, who over the sacraments, talking to Zwingli, says, you're of a different spirit, which essentially, from my understanding, is basically saying you're not a Christian. Taking these things very, very seriously, if the Baptists do reject uh, infant baptism, like we've, like I've said here, I mean, how in the world is it even possible for them to be looked upon as Catholic in any sense? I mean, it, isn't it the view that everybody would look at that and just say, well, you're obviously not Catholic because you're denying all these valid baptisms? Or Baptists would say, no, those aren't baptisms at all. Now, it seems like in today's context, it's a little bit easier because baptism is not it's been relegated from a first-tier issue to a second- or third-tier issue, depending on who you who you talk to. So maybe just I, I don't know if those questions make sense, if they link together well, if you want to answer one of them or not. I mean, just maybe this is a good jumping off point. Let me know what you think here on sort of that baptism-ish idea. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, th- I think basically, you know, we're getting to the heart of um, a lot of questions about, you know, baptistic identity during this period. I think this touches very closely to, you know, questions about, is Reformed Baptist an appropriate label? Does it make sense to join those two together? Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, just as an historical question, would people in early modern England have seen uh, those who denied infant baptism and operated outside of the national church as you know, sort of acceptable variations in the, you know, and great diversity. No, they would not have. They, they would have, um, you know, this changes over the course of the 17th century. You see more and more, um, uh, th- this becomes less and less of an issue. Let's put it that way. However, um, you know, Baptists or Anabaptists, as they would have been called. So you referenced, yeah, the front end of the 1644 confession, they, they kind of lead off with, you know, 
who's writing this thing. Uh, they don't have a positive descriptor for themselves, which again gets to this question of Baptistic identity. Who do they understand themselves to be? They don't have a handy label. They weren't calling themselves Baptists at that time. They certainly weren't calling themselves particular Baptists at that time. Uh, what do they call themselves? They define themselves negatively. They say, we're those falsely you know, called Anabaptists. Um, because to the early modern mind at this period, if you deny infant baptism, you know, they have a box to put you in, a mental box, and it's, you know, the Anabaptist box, and it links in with um, people who in the minds of um, most are seen as um, disruptive and threats, not just to the theological, you know, orthodoxy of the day, but are seen as threats to the civic order. And that's both because you have some sensational examples of Anabaptists um, doing some wild things. You know, the, the, this, the situation in Münster where they, uh, these guys take over the town and put in uh, their own sort of messianic millennium, millenarian kingdom, forced polygamy and all sorts of weird stuff. So you have those high profile incidents that are very much in people's minds rhetorically. They, they will often, uh, in the early modern English case, they'll say, aha, we see you Baptist folks. You are just like your heretical brethren in Germany, in Münster. So they're, they're saying that explicitly, but then also beyond just the kind of sensational incidents, there is this sense, and it's not, I think, I mean, they're, in a sense, they're not wrong, uh, you know, to deny infant baptism is to kind of strike at the heart of this Constantinian establishment church principle that has been the regnant assumption in Christendom for a really, really long time. And once you start sort of pulling apart membership in the church and membership in the state, you know, once you start saying that actually the boundaries of uh, the kingdom, um, uh, the church and the the civic kingdom, when you say those boundaries are no longer coterminous, you, you are sort of pulling at the fabric of things. And so this is just beyond uh, the pale for for most people. And so they respond to um, people who move in a baptistic direction during this period with with a real vehemence and a real kind of, oh, this is this is this is the worst. This is leading to all sorts of places that we don't want to go. Um, Today, we don't think about it in that same way because we don't have that cultural baggage. Um, and ironically, over the intervening centuries, it's not Baptistic people who have moved closer to uh, the establishment type. It, it's, it's the other way. It's, it's um, you know, Presbyterians are so angry about um, credo baptism during the 17th century in, in large measure because of the way in which it, it tears at the fabric of a national church. Well, you know, my Presbyterian friends today don't advocate, at least, you know, for, for a national church. Um, the, the Westminster Confession is, is modified on that score in an American context along the way. So, you know, it's a different conversation. And actually, um, the, the weight of not just, you know, Baptists, but everyone has moved towards um, the church as essentially a, a, a voluntaristic gathering of people who want to be there and are not compelled to be there by virtue of the fact that they were born into a particular uh, kingdom. I think I think one thing I would just add, you know, as we were discussing about, I think this is an important work for confessional conservative Baptists to be doing, 
such as what the Center for Baptist Renewal is doing, what we're trying to do, because it's really interesting to me. So I work here at the library at Southern, on Southern's campus, and, you know, and I, I like to go to the, to the Baptist history section a lot up here, and it's fascinating to see towards the end of the 20th century when a lot of controversy was happening in the SBC, there was a lot of material that was pumped out on Baptist identity and historical theology, but it was all done from the basis of all that it means to be a Baptist is soul freedom or soul competency. You're free to believe, essentially, whatever you want to. And I really feel that's an area where, on our side, we, we need to do better, a better job of getting material out, saying what does it mean to actually be a Baptist historically? Uh, because it's a very skewed view to say that all we've ever really championed is a liberty of conscience view um, and nonconformity that is stripped away of any confessional or creedal boundaries because they were all, they were for nonconformity as far as in the state's connection, but within the church, there was a conformity that was expected to doctrine, hence why confessions and even church covenants were used. So I, I think this is a really an as area we've got to do a better job and be more proactive. I was talking to someone who's pastored a long time in Reformed Baptist circles, and he said part of the problem is too often Reformed Baptists have only been reactionary. And we need to, I think, be more proactive in getting out what it is, who we are, and what we believe. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that um, the thing about, you know, soul liberty and, and um, religious liberty and, and freedom and, and that kind of thing is somehow definitional of what it means to be uh, a Baptist um, is an interesting one. I was struck by, I don't know if you've, you've read this, um, but uh, Thomas Kidd and, and Barry Hankins' book on Baptists in America and, you know, great history of Baptists in America. And at the end, though, um, in some ways, the most interesting part of the book to me was at the end when they, they kind of sum up, they say, okay, well, we've seen all this history sweeping survey. Well, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? And they go through some of the answers that are given and and kind of show how oh, that doesn't actually really cut the mustard. They specifically mention, you know, soul competency, religious freedom, all that. And they say, yeah, you, you know, you can certainly find people talking about that, but does that actually account for uh, the whole? And, and they conclude, no, it doesn't. And then the, um, you know, it's interesting because then the three things that they give, they say, okay, well, here's three marks. They say, um, create a baptism, obviously, uh, congregational church polity. And, and again, I just, I, as, as you know, we, we see those two are tightly, tightly linked. Uh, and then the third one they give is, is, is sort of funny, but they say, you know, the willingness to call oneself a Baptist, um, which, all right, you know, fair, fair enough. I mean, they're, they're working at that point, I think, looking for uh, descriptive categories that would kind of draw a loop around everybody. Um, you know, interestingly, I think it, in the early 17th century, people aren't calling themselves Baptists, which is another, another story. But um, you look at those first two, create a baptism in congregational church polity. And, and um, you know, t- to me, that goes back to kind of the, the, the emphasis in Orthodox radicals that, that I really see at the, at the beginning. Uh, you have essentially um, Puritan type, congregationalist type people who are working through what it means to be 
congregational, what it means to, to sort of remove oneself from the strong sense of a national church. And they find that um, paid baptism doesn't really fit well with that. And they, I think when you combine that context, that intellectual context of, of kind of um, rubbing up against, you know, w- w- what does it mean to sort of comprehensively include uh, all of the infants in, in this congregational vision, you know, and then they start putting that together with the, yes, with the silence of the New Testament on uh, paedobaptism and other kind of classic Baptist arguments. Um, you know, they emerge with this uh, rejection of paedobaptism that was very controversial at, at the time, incredibly controversial. Um, but in terms of identity and in terms of this question of sort of little c Catholicity, you know, you see that they, they, they do not immediately imagine themselves to be doing some distinct thing that marks them out from all Christians who have ever preceded them. Quite the contrary. They, they really see themselves as um, doing basically what all the reformers are, are doing at that time, which is, um, you know, we mentioned, you know, reformers are trying to, trying to get the, the, the popish stuff off the boat. The man, the stuff they see is man-made, idolatrous stuff that shouldn't be on the boat. They're trying to throw it overboard. And um, the from a Baptistic perspective in the 17th century, they're just like, look, we've got one more thing on here. Uh, it's the same process. It's the same um, process of gradual reformation. And um, they have one more step to take. And so they, they don't see themselves as, as doing something totally different than everybody else is doing. They see themselves as sort of just logically unfolding one more step. Well, this has been really awesome, Dr. Bingham. Thanks for talking with us. But I do want to take two quick minutes here. So for those of you who are listening, Dr. Bingham is a professor at Oak Hill College. Uh, and I think that's right next to London. I mean, how close are you to London? Uh, we are we're we're within the um, the M25, the big motorway that circles around it. So we have we have two backs into central London. We're 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 on the outskirts, but we're we're close enough. Well, I think London's one of the coolest cities that you could possibly live in. I've never lived there, but I've been there several times, and every time I go there, I love it. So if you're interested in further continued education in theology or things like that you should take the opportunity to look at Oak Hill College and check their website out and look at the programs that they've got. They've got undergraduate degrees, they've got master's degrees, they've got certificates, they have flexible learning as well if you don't want to live in London, even though I, I don't know why you wouldn't if you could. And then you can be able to study with people like Dr. Bingham and others like him. So I think it's a really great program that they've got there, going there, and you should definitely look into it. So Dr. Bingham, do you have anything else you'd like to add about Oak Hill? Um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, thanks for that. And um, yeah, on the flexible learning side. That's a new thing that um, the college has been doing. Uh, I'm going to be doing one this summer on uh, spiritual formation in the Reformed tradition. Um, so that's that's basically open to to, uh, to anyone through the website. Um, and uh, yeah, be, love to see anybody, anybody there who wants to, to do that. Awesome. Well, I tell you guys who are listening, you should go check out the website. Take a look around see if there's anything that makes sense for you in your current season of life and ministry and see if that makes sense. Anyway, Dr. Bingham, this has been awesome. And again, listeners, I'll tell you one more thing you need to do. I always want to recommend that you guys check out our guest work, but especially people like Dr. Bingham, who I think really exemplifies all that we're looking to do here with the London Lyceum. He's really just, he's a premier theologian, a premier historian, but he does it with the, the right sort of attitude and the right sort of disposition. 
So I can't recommend his work highly enough. Orthodox Radicals as well. I mean, just tremendous book. So go take a look at that and uh, find other resources that he's got out there as well, journal articles and such. Anyway, everybody's been listening. This has been a great time, and thanks for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.